me uh, in turning in your Bibles to the 12th chapter of the letter written to the Hebrews, where this morning we are going to be looking at verses 12 through... I'm going to read verses 12 through 17. Our focus is primarily going to be verses 12 through 15 this morning, getting to 16 and 17 next week, but we'll read uh, the whole passage for context. And this morning as we continue to make our way through this wonderful Christ-exalting epistle, I would like to sort of stir up your memories a bit here in this epistle to the Hebrews as to what it is that immediately precedes this text that we're going to be looking at before, before us this morning. So very briefly here at the outset of our look together at the Word of God, I would just like to quickly scan over what takes place in the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12. You remember the writer opens this chapter with a a very stirring call for the genuine Christians who are hearing this letter to persevere in the course of the Christian life. He says they are to lay aside every weight in the sin that so easily ensnares them and they are to run with endurance the race that had been set before them. We spoke at length about that. They were to set their faces like flint upon the glory of Jesus Christ, which glory, of course, the writer has painstakingly been laying out before them throughout the course of this entire letter. He mentioned to them this great cloud of witnesses that he had been pointing to for their consideration throughout chapter 11. And they were to draw strength from the manifest faithfulness of Almighty God that had been so clearly evident in all of the lives of those who had gone before them. And this great cloud of witnesses, you will remember, rather than being a sort of famous cheering section of great saints who would supposedly encourage God's weary people primarily through adding the weight and significance of who it was that was cheering them on, men like Noah and Abraham and Moses. We know that it's actually not at all pointing to these men themselves. It's not pointing to their fame, but to the faithfulness of Almighty God in carrying all of them to their final destination by and through faith. These were all sinful, weak troubled men and women who, despite their own failures, proved to be those who persevered solely by the grace of Almighty God. It is God's faithfulness that will lift and compel weary bodies towards the completion of what God Himself has started. And I trust, beloved, that that is a tremendous encouragement to us, as it was most certainly an encouragement to the original recipients of this letter. It is faith, the gift of Almighty God to His people, that will produce in us perseverance and even the needed endurance that will sustain us in the race of this life until it ends in glory with our Savior. The writer then moves to the subject of divine chastisement and we looked at that last week and he he gives to us some much needed perspective for the people of God. If we are to be those who persevere 
to the glory of God. And basically, he shows these struggling, persecuted, even afflicted Hebrew converts that their trials are not punishments. Rather, they are teachers, tutors, if you will, designed ultimately both for their own spiritual good and for God's glory. They are a manifestation not of God's wrath, but of His love. And beloved, this too is a wonderful truth that should encourage us as we spend time thinking about it, meditating upon it. Because it really does get to the motive of why it is that we do what we do. Do you understand what I mean by that? God's design in our afflictions is not our destruction. It's not our despair. It's not to lead us to live morose, even gloomy existences on this side of heaven. His design is ultimately our profit and His glory. It's through these things that we become partakers of His holiness. For the genuine child of God, divine discipline is what produces the peaceable fruit of righteousness, which ought to be valued by us above all other things in this life. And they are called here, beloved, we are called here to consider Jesus Christ. We are to look to His cross where for our sakes... He willingly laid down his life in order to redeem us from the power of sin, death, and the devil. Where Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and he did it for the joy of purchasing sinners like you and I to be his bride. And upon rising from the dead, he went to his rightful place at the right hand of the Father, where we are told in Scripture he is serving as our advocate. Until he brings us home to glory where he himself is. In one sense, it's the ultimate charge for the Christian. Consider Jesus Christ. Consider the gospel. He reminds them that in all their struggles, they have never even come close to enduring his suffering. They had not yet themselves even resisted to the point of shedding their own blood and their striving against sin. And he again points them to the purpose beneath their suffering, and it's their own spiritual good. They were being made. They were being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ and prepared for eternity in his presence. Their suffering was not now and never had been a cause for them to despair or for them to lose hope. But it existed to point them to the cross where they bring nothing but their sin and their their shame and they lay them down in exchange for every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ for eternity. Beloved, Almighty God chastises His children. He disciplines those whom he loves and he does it because he loves us as his own. So afflictions in this life, difficulties, trials, tribulations, in no way point us to an indifferent God. 
or to an angry God who is seeking to continually crush us. God is not bringing you through your present difficulties in order to create a morose and gloomy child who mistakenly thinks that his or her gloominess is something like humility. He is continually, lovingly, persistently bringing those for whom Christ died to a place where even in this fallen flesh we may joyfully worship the God who loves us enough to wean us from this world even as he graciously prepares us for the one that is yet to come. Beloved, it's with all of this in mind that the writer of this letter now moves on to what this means for us and the way that we as the church of Jesus Christ are to approach this life. And I trust that the word of God will be a balm for all of our souls this morning as we go through our own particular trouble. So I'd like you to follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 12. Again, I'm going to read 12 through 17, though our focus is primarily going to be 12 through 15 this morning. This is the word of our Lord. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many have become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward when he wanted to inherit the blessing, He was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful for the opportunity that we have this morning to come before your word, and we pray that your spirit would guard guard us, that your spirit would guide us, that you would... Free our hearts and our minds of all those things that distract us. And that through the power of that Spirit that we would hear these words and know these words and trust these words so that we might be transformed by these words for your glory. And Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as has so often been the case as we've looked together at this letter, we have here once again that word, therefore... That should always alert us to the fact that the writer is now going to make for us an application from what he has already clearly stated. And beloved, it is an an application that I honestly believe will do us all a world of good to consider and to meditate upon as we live out our lives under the sun and these fleshly bodies on this side of the magnificent glory of what will be our celestial home in heaven. He says, therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Again, the immediate context is, of course, these struggling Hebrews who have been severely persecuted, having faced many afflictions, having had their lives made much more difficult by their faith in Christ. They are now on the brink 
of actually considering falling into the very height of folly. In order to attain the peace that they felt that they once knew, they were actually considering a return into the shadows of Judaism over resting in the substance lying beneath every shadow. The Lord Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, having been seriously wearied by their struggles, they are now on the brink of looking for relief where it can never, ever be found. And I trust that we can all relate to at least part of this, right? We all seem to have this default setting in our flesh that always wants to correct our course through forced action. Through our just doing something, just doing anything. Through taking a particular stand, through sacrificing something tangible, something even valuable. Doing anything to somehow prove to God and to the people around us, though not always in that order, that we are in fact serious about Almighty God. And it's a path that does nothing to firm up the hope that truly ought to be within us. It deteriorates it to the point that we are led not to the desired peace that we sought from the beginning, but rather to despair. We see it a lot uh, this time of year, and by this time of year I mean the beginning of the year. We're getting into February, but it's not so far removed that we don't remember what we seem to do every year. Right? We say, I'm going to resolve to do things differently this year. We've either heard it or we've said it ourselves, and so we plan and we set goals and we buckle down and we try to get there. It's not that these things are necessarily bad in and of themselves, but we think that they will be the thing to deliver us from our trouble, to bring peace to our restless minds and refreshment to our wearied bodies. I'm afraid if we think that, we're going to be sorely disappointed. We may even arrive at every single goal that we have set, only to be standing on the side of victory, wondering why it is that we still do not feel as if we have arrived yet. Beloved, can you relate to that? Well, why is it? Why is it that we still feel shackled, we, we still feel empty, even when we stand on the successful side of reaching these goals and achievements? Well, remember, the writer has referred to the Christian life through this great metaphor as a race. But we must get the full picture here. You see, the picture is not an illustration of a series of 40-yard dashes. The race of the life lived by faith in Jesus Christ is portrayed instead as a marathon. It's a lifelong struggle where we are continually running. Our legs are always moving. Our arms are perpetually pumping. Our lungs are forever burning. The arriving at the finishing line is not somewhere along the way. Ultimately, this race only ends at death. Do you understand? The fuel for your burning lungs and your sore legs is not the small victories along the way. You're not even looking to the side in this race. 
Your focus is not on passing those around you. You are not seeking to win the leg. The picture is running with your face set like flint upon the end. Where Jesus Christ awaits your arrival in the glory of heaven. The fuel is the wonderful gospel. The good news of who you are. Because Jesus Christ has run this race before you perfectly. And he has set the course for you. He is lovingly correcting your path along the way. And he's pointed to by all of these other witnesses who have run the race and crossed over into glory because of his faithfulness. And having painted this beautiful picture, the writer says, so now knowing this, pick up the drooping hands. Strengthen the weak knees. Lift your countenance because you see that you are not running this race for your own glory. You are not compelled in this race by your own selfish motives. You're not even moved along in this race by your own perceived ability and strength. He has set the race. He is bringing you through the race. And he will collect every single one of his runners at the end. This whole letter has in one sense been making that very point. This is who Jesus is. And when you, by the grace of Almighty God, see Him for who He is, then you will see what you truly are by nature of your union with Him. And the point of all of it is to say, rejoice. See what an amazing act of grace has been done for you in and through Jesus Christ. It's wonderful, life-changing news. He has set the course. He's mastered the course for us in our place. And our end is as sure as our beginning, relying not upon our speed, not upon our conditioning, but upon His perfect faithfulness. Beloved, let me ask you something. In the face of your trial, knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ, where in this picture is there a place for you to waste away in despair? Where in this wonderful, vivid portrait of a sovereign and merciful God who loves you despite of what you are, who has graciously accomplished everything that you could ever need, where do you find a place to succumb to something like hopelessness? Where in this awesome grace-filled picture can you find a place to mistakenly identify your joyless countenance, your stiff upper lip, your self-abasing sorrow with something like genuine humility? Beloved, I say it because you can't. You cannot. If your smile is dependent upon losing or winning what you perceive to be the individual legs of this race, then it's my duty as your pastor to tell you you have not yet understood anything about the race that you are in. Do you understand? There is not a place in the gospel for these things, for the true child of God. Despair and hopelessness, if we choose to indulge them, if we choose to bid them to come on in and stay for a while, we stand in an extremely dangerous place. And we need to be mercifully adjusted by the truth. The trail has already been blazed by our Savior. 
So we are to make straight paths for our feet looking to him who will complete what he has begun in each of us. Beloved, I hope you see the tremendous hope in that. It's ultimately hopelessness that leads us to despair. It's why we cannot ever cease looking to Jesus Christ in whom hope abounds. We must look to who he is. We must look to what he did, to what he has given us in his once and for all sacrifice. To look away from him is to do what Peter did as he walked upon the sea. As he walked out to Jesus Christ on the top of the waves. We look to the side. We look back to the boat. We indulge our doubts. We give in to our fears. We lose hope and we begin to sink. And it ought not to be so with the people of God. And obviously we know it can happen. This letter was written for that very purpose. But armed with the promises of God in Jesus Christ. Armed with the light of his word. We look to Him and we continue to run with Holy Spirit-fueled legs and lungs. The writer gives us this picture of what our running will look like if we're doing it this way. He points to two things here that we ought to be doing in this life if we truly, by faith, belong to Jesus. And though they seem simple on the surface, I think there is a veritable treasure trove here for you and I to meditate upon. Look at what he says. First, we are to pursue peace with all people. And we are to pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You say, well, what does that mean? Is the writer of Hebrews now giving us the secret key to unlock the victorious Christian life? Is he now having covered the basics of Christianity? Christianity sort of moving on from the gospel? Giving us tangible steps to now take? Is he calling upon us to do our part, to get busy, to get to work? Well, I would say yes and no. Yes, he's pointing us to something that we ought to be doing by necessity of who and what we are in Jesus Christ. And no, he's not now calling you to perform your duty so that God will know once and for all that you are one of the serious ones. He's not now, nor ever will he in this letter, move on from the gospel. But he's getting to the effects of the gospel upon the one who has been graciously given eyes that truly see. Pursuing peace with all people and holiness ought to sound familiar to us. Let's look at both of them for just a moment. What does it mean to pursue peace with all people? Well, first and foremost, it means that we are not to live this life for ourselves. Jesus was continually talking about dying to self and living unto him. It means putting the needs of others above our own. It means placing an emphasis on being a blessing to others rather than simply living for ourselves. It means loving our neighbors more than we love ourselves, right? It's the horizontal plane of the Christian life. Rather than standing in opposition to the gospel, it really gets to the heart of it. This is exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. 
He left aside the glory that was his with the Father from all of eternity. He came to this world. He took on flesh and he lived a lifetime of suffering in order to pay the penalty for our sin. He willingly laid down his life that we may have life eternal. It's the heart of the gospel. And holiness goes hand in hand with it. Holiness in its most simple definition means to be set apart. Set apart from this world and set apart unto God. We belong to Him, not to this ever-fading world. Our home is where He is, not this fleeting world. We are to be holy even as He is holy. Now let me be crystal clear here. Holiness is a necessary condition of our salvation. But I'm not saying that our salvation is caused by our holiness. Rather that holiness is a necessary condition which flows out of salvation. You understand the difference. The writer is not now flipping the content of this entire letter upon its proverbial ear by advocating a works-based salvation. But he is pointing to what salvation indeed looks like. This is a point he's made several times before, perhaps nowhere more clearly than in chapter 10, verse 14, where he explains what this necessary holiness consists of. It points us back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what he says there. For by one offering, he, that is Jesus Christ, has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. We are not now perfectly holy in this flesh. We would say there is a definite hole in our holiness. But Jesus Christ, with his one sacrifice, is now perfecting and will continue to perfect those who are being sanctified, those whom he is actively loving, those whom he will continue to prepare for glory, where this rotten flesh of ours will be no more and our holiness will be made perfect where we will worship the Lamb upon His throne face to face without fear and without shame, where guilt will no longer exist. Do you understand? This is holiness. And without it, no one will see the Lord. It is the vertical plane of the Christian life. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we are enabled to love Him Because he first loved us. We are to love our neighbors even as we love ourselves. That's why I said it ought to be familiar. It's the very summary that Jesus himself gave of the holy law of God in Matthew chapter 22. It's that point that is driven home with the force of a hammer blow in the gospel according to Mark chapter 10. With Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler, right? We've talked about that before. We all know the story. When the rich young ruler asked Jesus what he needed to do to inherit eternal life, and Jesus pointed him to the law of God as a measuring rod. And he says to the young man, well, what does the law of God say? And the rich young ruler proudly proclaims all of these things I have kept from my youth. I am holy. I have arrived. The law holds no guilt and no fear for me. And Jesus replies with, well, one thing you still lack. Go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then follow me. 
and the self-righteous, self-deceived, self-worshipping young man immediately forgets perseverance. He forgets hope. And he leaves with his arms drooping and his head hanging down. And what's the point? You see, Jesus immediately placed his finger on the hole in the young man's supposed holiness. He had, in fact, not kept the law. In fact, by pointing to his love of his things, Jesus made it crystal clear that the young man had not kept even the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. But he also pointed out the lack of the necessary fruit of real holiness in this man's life. The man loved nothing like he loved himself. His pursuits in life were for himself. He had gathered and amassed the world's wealth for himself. That is why his grip was so tight that he could not let it go. And when given the chance to live, the very summary of the whole law His pursuit of peace with all people and his holiness to God, the summary of the law proved to be non-existent in this young man's life. His pursuit of even the inheritance of eternal life was entirely for himself. Beloved, do you see the point here? He left with his head hanging down. He left with his arms dragging. He left on weak knees of weariness because he could not and he would not force himself to see beyond the end of his own nose. I think that if we were to spend some time dwelling on this, it would lead to much investigation into our own motives. This is completely contrary to what so many want to focus on and what is passing for Orthodox Christianity these days. In our day, we want to think less of our neighbor and more about our own attainments, secular and in the church. And we hear it all the time. What can Christianity do for me? What can the church do for me? How can I climb to the ranks of the super spiritual? What can I do in order to obligate God to bless me? How can I become the center of attention in the church? What can I do to get people to follow me? How can I achieve the respect and the praises of my fellow man that my flesh so desires? Me, 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 me. And of course, then God, and then a little bit more of me. And yet it actually flies in the face of what Scripture points us towards. Did you notice that the writer did not say to these struggling Hebrew followers of Christ amid a virtual firestorm of self-pity which leads to shipwrecked faith, did you notice he doesn't look at them and say, strengthen your hands which hang down and your feeble knees? He says, strengthen the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees. Do you hear the difference? Beloved, I can't say it any more clearly. Christianity is dying to self and living for the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we are ever to have strengthened limbs for the race that has been set before us, 
We have to know that truth. In verse 15, he adds to the picture of an outward faith. He says, looking carefully, lest anyone should fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble by which many have become defiled. The writer explains this statement further in the verses that follow, and I'm not going to go into them this morning because we're going to revisit this text next week. But for now, I want to ask you a closing question or two. I want you to be honest with yourselves. Beloved, would you say that you strive for peace with your neighbors? Do you strive or care about holiness? I'm not asking if you do these things for salvation. I'm asking if you do these things in light of salvation. These are the fruits of knowing the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you've been affected by the gospel of Jesus Christ, you truly should be keeping short lists, or I would say no list, of those who offend you in this life. I've said it many times. I have to say it to myself every day. No one has offended you like your sin has offended a perfectly holy God. No one. And yet he covers our sin with his perfect righteousness. We deserve wrath and we get grace. How can we be anything but patient, long-suffering, merciful, compassionate with our fellow image bearers? I'm not talking about tolerating sin as if sin does not matter. Neither is the writer to the Hebrews for that matter. It is a pursuit of peace and holiness, not a pursuit of peace at the expense of holiness. But with that being said, if you're not pursuing these things in your life right now, I want you to ask yourself why. Why are you not pursuing them? It's a painful, difficult question to search out the answer for. But we need to step back and we need to take a look at our own lives for a moment. How do people see you? Are you as concerned with, as torn up by your own sin as you are with everyone else's? Are you looking constantly for opportunities to pick up your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you nearly as concerned for the needs of those around you as you are of your own? Or even aware of the needs of those around you as you are of your own? Is faith in Jesus Christ simply about your own personal growth, your own personal development? Beloved, I ask these questions not to compel you to strive now to do things to prove yourself. If these things are not already proving faith in you, what then is? The truth is, if you know what your identity is in Jesus Christ, then you cannot possibly fail to show some glimpses of it. If you've tasted the heavenly gift of redemption solely by the grace of God, because of His mercy and love poured out on a sinner like you, you know that you cannot possibly hoard it. 
Jesus Christ died to redeem you from the curse of the law so that the law of God may become a very real source of joy and delight for you. He calls you to live it, albeit imperfectly, because he has made it your love and not your condemnation any longer. How is that law summarized? Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. Beloved, is your faith bearing outward fruit? Fruit towards God and your neighbor? Or is it simply serving to establish your own comfort, your own fame, your own legacy? Is it simply Christianity for you that is self-satisfying? I hope that you will meditate upon this truth today and in the days to come. Not so that you can despair. That's never my goal. It's never my aim in preaching. I'm not calling you to to live in despair, but calling you to, to recognize that once and for all, you can shake off that despair. You can stop hanging your head. You can pick up your weak arms. You can strengthen your weak knees and be fully satisfied. You can be fully content in the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher and the perfecter of your faith for the good of His people and for the glory of His name. That's the Christian life. Amen? Let's pray.